the premise of the book is that small changes can have a major impact on a, um, a situation. And uh, several people in our church, there have been three actually over the past four weeks, who've come to me independent of one another. And as they've been praying for our church and kind of spending their time with the Lord, they've, the, they've said that they feel like uh, an issue God wants to deal with us on, and they're not really sure what us means, is uh, the way we talk. Gossip, tearing other people down, that kind of thing. Um, so one of the things that we want to do during Lent, in addition to looking at it kind of in terms of the food, they say it takes six weeks to make or break a habit. And so I want to encourage you during the 40 days of Lent to make a conscious effort to watch what you say. If you're prone to gossip, just own it and don't. Do your best over the next 40 days to not gossip. Do your best over the next 40 days. If you run people down, do the best over the next 40 days to not do that. This, in the tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell talks about something called the broken windows theory. In New York in the late 80s, early 90s, I think crime had gotten completely out of hand on the subways and in the city. And they brought in a new guy to run the subway system. And the first thing he did, he subscribed to this broken windows theory. As he said, we're going to start washing graffiti off the trains and we're going to prevent guys from jumping turnstiles. Very minor infractions compared to everything else that was happening on the subway. But he said, that's where we're going to start. So every night he scrubbed the trains. He never put a, a train out that had graffiti on it. He put uniformed policemen and, un, and undercover policemen all up and down these turnstiles to make sure people weren't jumping. They had a very public presence in the subway. And pretty quickly, crime began to drop in the subway. Giuliani becomes the mayor, and he brings in a guy to be his chief of police who does the same thing with crime in New York. They start cracking down on petty crime, on public drunkenness and aggressive panhandling, and they see the crime rate drop tremendously. And they attribute it to this broken windows theory that says if you're in an area and the windows of a building are broken, you assume people don't care about it. And so then you do what you want. And so we want to see kind of these sins of the tongue in a very similar way. They seem small. They seem minor. Our desire as a church is to see our community changed by God. Marietta and Cobb County are wonderful. They're not, they're not where God wants them to be. They're things he wants to do in our city and in our county. And we can sometimes get our eyes on the big thing. Let's go after these big, mega, sinful issues. And it could be, it sounds like what God maybe is saying to us right now is why don't you repair the broken windows first? Watch what you say. Speak kindly to one another and about one another. What's that thing if a tree falls in the forest and no one, no one hears it, did it make a noise? I wonder if gossip is spoken and no one pays attention if it goes anywhere. Or if bad things are said about people and they don't, there's no response if it just dies right there. It's very difficult to control your tongue. I'll, the Bible's very clear on that, James 2. But it's easier to me to control your ears. So it could be for you. Don't be self-righteous. But if you're in a conversation with someone and it starts going in a bad direction, just pull out. Redirect it. Pull out. Let's just see what happens over the next six weeks if we collectively make a point to say, we're going to, as much as we can, we're going to do our best to speak kindly to and about other folks, and we're not going to engage in conversations where we're dragging, dragging other people down or talking about them. Good? All right. One more. I mentioned last week this Connect conference. We're connected with two other churches, Riverstone and Vintage 242, and the first uh, weekend in March, we're all coming together. It's basically kind of like a family uh, one, one of the dangers of being an independent church like we are is uh, we can lose sight of what God is doing in the broader 
community and in the world. We can kind of get focused in on what we're doing because we're not necessarily connected to any larger body of believers. So we've made a point to connect to these other two churches. We have a network. I can tell you about that later. And the, the, this March, this first weekend in March, we're making a point to come together as a, an extended church family for worship, for prayer. We're going to hear the same messages. We're going to talk about the same values. It's going to be really good. And the springboard for that is in April, all three of our churches are going to do a, a service day in Cobb County. So our, our, the goal is for all of us to begin to mix with people from Riverstone and Vintage there. I said last week, they're like your cousins. Many of you just haven't met them yet. So over the next three weeks, uh, me and Steve Hambrick, who's the pastor at Vintage, and Tom Tanner, who's the pastor at Riverstone, are going to rotate churches. So I'll be here this week, and I'll be at those churches the next two. Those guys will be here. And, we're all, and all three of us are doing uh, parables on the kingdom of God. We're trying to emphasize the importance of the kingdom even over what we're doing as churches. Some of you know Tom and Steve. It will be a great opportunity for you to reconnect with them. Some of you do not know Tom and Steve, and it will be a good opportunity for you to get to know them. All that's leading up to this conference on March 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th. The 4th, we're going to have a night of prayer here. And then the 5th, we'll get, that's a Friday night, we'll have a service at Riverstone. Tom, uh, Steve, and I will be speaking, and all of our respective worship teams will be leading worship. We'll have something Saturday morning. Saturday afternoon, we're going to have a block party of stuff for the kids or renting an ice cream truck, all that kind of jazz. We'll have a service Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, March 7th, we're going to have one service at Mount Perrin Christian School at 10 o'clock. It'll be really good. might be a little bit of a pain, but it'll be worth it. It'll be good for all of us to get together and to worship corporately. So my challenge to you, in addition to being there Sunday morning at Sunday morning at 10 is to come to one other thing. Just pick one, Thursday night, Friday night, sometimes Saturday. Pick one. You're not a conference guy, that's fine. I'm not a conference guy either. This, is, this isn't a conference. It's more, again, it's more of a reunion. And we need to mix um, with these other guys. So my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is to come to pick one at least and come to it. All right, this is Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So, uh, pretty pretty clear there. Both of those parables are telling have the same point, and the point is pretty obvious. The kingdom of God is of supreme worth or supreme value. Whatever you've got to give in order to get the kingdom, then you give it because it's worth more than whatever it is that you're giving. Just a little uh, point here. The Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says kingdom of heaven. That's a synonym for kingdom of God that you'll see in Mark and Luke. They mean the same thing. Matthew just uses the word heaven. And uh, when we think kingdom, a lot of times we think of a geographic area like a realm where a king rules. And in the New Testament, the, kingdom, the phrase kingdom of God is used that way, but usually that's a future tense when jesus will come back and establish his kingdom fully and finally on the earth uh in the present tense when you see kingdom of god when it looks like it's stuff that god is talking about now or the bible's talking about for now it usually means the rule and reign of god i think it's in matthew 6 10 in the luke in the lord's prayer jesus says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so there's this picture of the kingdom of god as the dynamic of god's rule or reign his will being done is his kingdom being Express. So when we talk about kingdom of God, I don't want you to think necessarily about a physical location as much as God's rule and reign over us, over creation. Okay? So again, you get the point there. Uh, 
the kingdom of God, the, the rule and reign of God, whatever it takes for you to live under that, you give because it's worth it. Jesus, back-to-back parables, you may ask why back-to-back. There are two, dis- two differences that I saw. One is in the finder. And the first one, the guy who stumbles upon this treasure, he's a poor farmer. We know he's poor because he's working someone else's land. We know it's somebody else's land because he didn't know the treasure was there. So you've got a poor farmer who basically stumbles upon this treasure. And then he, he hides it again and he sells all his stuff to get it. If you're worried about the morality of that, don't be. That's in uh, Jewish law, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And so he found it. And it was fine for him to hide it again and go and sell his stuff and buy the field. When you bought the field, you bought everything within the field. So that's he's okay from that perspective. And then the second parable, you have a rich businessman or a well-to-do businessman. It's a merchant who already owns things. So you have both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. You've got a poor farmer who most likely doesn't even own any land. and You have a well-off merchant. Also, you can see their motives are different. The farmer just stumbles upon the kingdom. The merchant is actually, is, uh, stumbles upon the treasure. The merchant is actively seeking or intentionally seeking the treasure. But you see the response is the same. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your position on the ladder, and really regardless of your motive, when you come across the kingdom of God, whether it hits you in the face like a two-by-four and you weren't looking for it, or you're actively searching for it and you finally find it, the response is the same. Whatever it takes for you to get it, do it. It's worth whatever you've got. Whether you've got a lot like the merchant or you've got nothing like the farmer, it's worth selling everything you have in order to live under this rule and reign of God. Again, it doesn't matter if you're looking for it or not. When, when you're confronted with the reality of the kingdom, your, our, your response, sell everything in order to grab hold of it. You know, I don't know how you are, I hear that, and my immediate response is, well, that's sweet, but it's not real. It's, to me, this is Valentine's Day. Like, I would climb any mountain to be with you, and I'd swim across the ocean, and I'd give you my kidney, and whatever it takes to be with you. And she's saying, I just wish you'd put the seat down every now and again. It's not, it's, we're hypothetically heroic. That's what we're drawn to. That's what movies are made of and romance novels are written about. and song. It's all hypothetically heroic. And that's where this parable is. Well, yeah, I would sell everything. Many of you who are Christians, you would say, yes, I would sell everything. You hadn't sold a thing, and neither have I. Of course I would sell everything because I'm never going to have to sell anything. Sign me up. It's hypothetically heroic. And that pushes against being tangibly real mundane, which is where we live. We all say, those of us who are Christians, most of us would say, absolutely, I would sell everything to follow Jesus. Knowing good and well, we're never going to have to sell anything to follow him. Maybe we have to give a little bit to the church now and then. But that's it. It, it doesn't connect with where we live. Y'all heard that old story um, about the, the two farmers who were good friends during the Depression. And the guy comes up to his friend and says, man, if you had two pickup trucks, would you give me one? And the guy says, man, you know, we're good as friends as we are. If, we had, if I had two trucks, I'd give you one. What about tractors? If you had two tractors, you'd give me one? Yeah, man. As good as friends as we are, if I had two tractors, I'd give you one. What about a hog? If you had two hogs, would you give me one? And this guy says, man, you know I got two hogs. Tangibly real. That took a while. It's like a, it's 12 o'clock. Tangibly real hypothetically heroic. 
yeah, I give you anything. As long as you don't ask for anything I actually have. And then it becomes real and it, we push away. So where are we with this parable? Flip over to Matthew 19. Starting in verse 13. The little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, that is, if you want to, if you want to be complete, if you want to finish this, Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. that through a new of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So you've got this contrast between these little kids. Luke actually calls them babies. So you've got, these are kids, zero, one, two, three, four years old, who are coming to Jesus, and he says they're entering the kingdom of heaven. And on the other hand, you have this man, we know from Luke, he's a ruler, a rich young ruler. And a, a few things about him. One, he's sincere. There's nothing textually to make us question his sincerity. He wants to know what it takes to inherit eternal life. Pause. Uh, through this story, you'll see eternal life, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, following Jesus, salvation, all used interchangeably. They're, they're all talking about the same thing. Those are all different ways of the same concept, living in a right relationship with God under his rule and reign. Salvation, following Jesus, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, eternal life, all mean the same thing. So you've got this guy, and he's sincere. Well, if you go and you read uh, around this story, there are times where Jesus is tested, and he knows it, and he comes at people much stronger than he comes at this guy. So that every indication is this guy is sincere in his quest for eternal life. He goes to the right source. He goes to Jesus. So apparently he knows enough about Jesus to know this guy, knows what he's talking about when it comes to God, when it comes to the things of the kingdom, when it comes to these issues of eternal life, this guy knows. So you've got a guy who's sincere. You've got a guy who's a truth seeker. And he's a good man. He kept all the commandments. Again, Jesus doesn't dispute that this guy did that. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, but remember that time? He, yes, you kept all of the commandments. So you've got a sincere, truth-seeking, devout, righteous man who leaves dejected. And you've got kids, snot-nosed, whiny, can't-do-anything-for-themselves kids who get in. Like, how, does that, how does that work? This is the guy you want on your team. And he walks away sad. These are the guys you put next door. And they're the ones that get in. Matthew 18. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the key verse. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is the key quality Jesus is looking for. Humility. Humility can, be, can mean feeling inferior. That's not what it means here. It can mean feeling unworthy. That's not what it means here. It can mean dependence. That's exactly what it means here. Again, these are babies. If you've ever been around a baby, a baby can't do anything for him or herself. We have a seven-month-old. We leave him alone for three days, and he's dead, literally dead. He can't even sit up on his own. All he can do is cry, and when he cries, he's telling you to do something for him. He can't do anything on his own. And what Jesus is saying is we've got to become like that if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. So you've got a guy over here who's sincere, who's devout, who's seeking the truth, and he misses it because he can't become like a baby and say, I'm dependent upon someone else. You can only enter the kingdom of God with two feet. You can't enter it with one. And that's what this rich young man tried to do. One foot in the kingdom, one foot on his possessions. And Jesus called him on it. You've got to take that, you've got to put them both in here. The thing about the kingdom being worth so much, it is worth whatever it takes for you to grab onto it. And it will require everything you have to grab onto it. It's not just what it's worth, it's what it demands of us. It's an all or nothing thing. We went to the circus last yesterday, still working through all that. I'm not sure if I'm a circus guy or not. But one of the things that we saw, everybody who's doing this high wire stuff now, and I 100% agree with them, they all got a mat underneath them, which makes me feel bad. It's probably not a good sign when I'm just waiting on each of the things to get over without somebody hurting themselves. But they've got these air mats underneath them in case they fall. You can't have one of those if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. There are no security blankets. There are no safety nets. You can't hedge. There are no plan Bs. You can't put an air mat underneath you in case it doesn't work out. You're in with both feet or you can't come in at all. This picture of following Jesus, try to follow him with one foot. You can't do it. You've got to walk after him with with everything you have or you can't walk after him at all. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God, it's worth whatever it takes, anything that gets in your way, get rid of it. Get rid of anything that gets in your way from entering into or remaining in the kingdom of God. This is what he's talking about. Here's a real-life example. It goes from hypothetically heroic to tangibly real. Then get rid of that stuff. And the guy walks away. The sincere, the devout, truth-seeking guy walks away. And again, most of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably said, I'd have done it. If he asked me for that, I'd have said yes. Again, and we say that because we know he's not going to. Only guy in the Bible who's ever told to sell everything. But I'd have done it. I just wonder, would you really? Would I have? Again, hypothetically heroic, yes. What about tangibly real? If we've sold everything, would we still be struggling with this? Would we be talking about gossip and slander if we'd sold everything? Would our city be in the shape it's in? if we had gotten rid of everything that keeps us from embracing the kingdom? You gotten rid of your reputation yet? 
You don't care what people say about you. You don't care what they think about you personally or professionally. You've given, you've sold that. You sold your rights, your right to be offended, your right to be right, your right to be treated fairly, your right to hold a, you've given, you sold that, your dreams, you sold those. Whatever it is that's in your, have you sold that? Your desires, your success, your future success, have you sold that yet? If that gets in the way, you willing to get rid of that? Not hero- hypothetically heroic, tangibly real. What's, what's getting in the way? You don't have any plan Bs. You don't have a safety net at all. You don't lean just a little bit on your looks, just a little bit on your personality, a little bit on your work ethic or your paycheck or your network or your last name. None at all. You're two feet in the kingdom None of your weight on anything else? Could be. Could be. If that's the case, wonderful. If it's not the case, what is it? What is it that you're putting your weight on? What is it that you're holding on to that will keep you from grabbing hold of the kingdom? It's two feet, it's two hands. You can't have anything else in your hands. You can't have anything else under your feet. It's a big step. You don't need to enter into it lightly. But if you're going to enter into it, you've got to enter into it with everything you've got. And until you do, you're, gonna, you're not going to. And I think that's where we fool ourselves. We think we've entered in, and we haven't. We're still on the threshold with one foot in and one foot out. And he's saying, sell it. Surrender it. Release it. Cut it off. Die to it and come follow me. Let's pray.